Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you a unique insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 239. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is the brightest cosmetic chemist in California. At least that's what it says on her business cards, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. <laughs> Hi, Perry. The, uh, how are the fires out there in California? They died down yet? All gone, but they might come back again. So who knows? We've been having a lot of heat waves. Oh my! Well, uh, I don't, I don't miss living in California, although I never have. <laughs> I was just gonna say what? <laughs> hey, you know what we have on today's show, Valerie? I was going through all of the questions that were sent in, and there were, were like. 80 questions behind so so, and I like to categorize all of the questions and I was like hey there's a bunch of hair care questions I said let's make today the hair care extravaganza and we're just going to answer questions about hair care sound fun we do love hair we We love hair too well today we're going to be answering questions about whether coal tar can be a substitute for AHA and BHA products whether there are any downsides to those color fast hair colors that or those hair colorants that uh, develop really fast, whether salt sprays are safe to use on your hair, and whether people are wasting their money buying the purple shampoos. Uh, but first, mm. uh, let's do some of that inane chit chat that we got. Uh, you have you have you got anything to uh, to report today since last time? Well, I'm very tired. Today was the annual lecture that I do. Uh, Perry and I are guest lecturers at the University of Toledo for their cosmetic science program. And I speak about hair color chemistry. It's a very long presentation. I maximize the whole 55 minutes and I literally sound like an auctioneer at the end because I'm like running out of time. It's oh, pretty what? funny. Uh, but University of Toledo is on the East Coast and I'm in California. So I had to get up at 4 a.m just to make sure I was ready uh, for the 5 a.m. lecture. So I'm a bit tired today. I can imagine that. Although you say East Coast, it's sort of the mid-coast. as It's in Ohio. It's not even near the ocean, right? Well, it's like borderline Midwest, right. you know? Yeah, it's mid- but I don't think the Midwest claims it. I don't think the East Coast claims it. Ohio right. is like kind of no man's land. And I'm allowed to say that I'm from Ohio. That's so. right. You are from Ohio. Well, yeah. uh, on my end, I've got this, uh, I still got this kitty cat that I've had for two months, and she's she's fabulous, but I think we might, you actually have a uh, an adopter for her. Aww. Yeah, which, you know, makes me a little sad, but my wife is happy because she's been sneezing, <laughs> and her eyes are a gal puffy, and she's like, oh, Aww. yeah, well, there you well, go. Well, good for the cat, too. That'll be good to have a forever home. I- indeed, indeed. All right, are we ready to move on to some uh, beauty science news? What did you see this week? Well, I saw a couple of things. Uh, The first one I saw, and I thought of you, it's a story about L'Oreal and a patent that they got related to uh, hair coloring. It says L'Oreal files a patent of a smart robotic system for personalized hair care dye kits. Uh, it turns out that L'Oreal said it has designed this uh, 
smart network and it engaged in uh, personalized hair color and essentially what happens is that the consumer will order a specific hair color and then the robot will figure out exactly what kind of uh, mixture it's supposed to put through and then it's uh you know mm. it'll it uses artificial intelligence to fill this single unit bottles according to the personalized uh, online orders. So, um, so essentially, this is uh, this should replace all of the cosmetic chemists out there who are working in color. Don't you think that's lovely? <laughs> <laughs> well, someone has to formulate the bulk that the robot is picking up and putting in. So this actually is not L'Oreal's first patent when it comes to devices meant to custom make cosmetic products. There were some patents filed or at least granted in 2013 or 14 related to how these machines are designed and built and measuring color. Um, I'm a little surprised with this patent. It'd be interesting to read the fine details because there's another company on the market called eSalon and I may or may not be familiar with them sure. uh, based on my work history, but uh, they already utilize uh, customized technology with machinery. So I'd be interested to see how this is different. When you file a patent, you have to, you can't patent something that's already out on the market. Right. It has to be a unique idea. You have to show proof of concept um, that it, it has worked. So I'd be interested to read this patent. Um, in full detail, but I'm not surprised that they're going into this space given that Henkel has acquired a large portion of e-salon and they probably want to remain really competitive in the home market. L'Oreal also owns a company called Color Co. Um, so I'm wondering if this mechanism that they're using is part of that uh, home hair color launch. So that'll be interesting to see. But as a hair color chemist, are you worried about, uh, you know, hair color chemists uh, going the way of the dinosaurs? I mean, theoretically, that's what the headline says, right? Yeah, I think um, this is, I think would probably more replace a stylist more than a hair color chemist because how these machines work is they have bulk drums of color and they pull portions of hair color out. So someone still has to create those formulas. Uh Somebody still has to be in control of the manufacturing. I really think the stylist is the one that's impacted here potentially, but you know, I think, um, I don't think anyone's going to leave the salon and go to this home hair color. Maybe a couple people will, but I think most people, um, you know, if they're going to a stylist or going to a stylist, if they're using home hair color, they're going to keep using home hair color. So that's my prediction. Yeah. And you know, it seems to me that that home hair coloring is, it's a little tricky to apply, right? <laughs> Trying to get it on your head. Yeah. Without, yeah. It's a little tricky. You know, yeah. I, I once worked for a guy and he was a hair color expert and, his advice always was uh, to women who were getting their hair colored. He's like, go to a stylist and get that done. Don't do that at home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, home hair color is great if you are savvy at applying. I personally like make a huge mess. um, So it's not for me. But if you're good at application and single process is for you and you don't want a really unique look, it's pretty good. Home hair color and salon professional hair color, uh, you know, People don't like when I say this, but they use the same chemistry. The differences in the technique, the application, being able to put highlights, low lights, giving it dimension. You cannot do that at home. You have to go to a stylist for that. And lightening hair, 
if you want to bleach and tone, virtually impossible at home. So you need to go to a stylist for that as well. You know, th- what it just occurred to me, my former sister-in-law, uh, she used to color her hair, home hair color, and she used to do her eyebrows. What, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, I thought people should do their eyebrows too. And the stylists at work were like, no, you never want your eyebrows to match your hair color exactly. Okay. I was like, oh. Well, I, but but I also just think from a safety standpoint, that doesn't seem like a good idea to get those chemicals near your eyes. <laughs> I don't uh, know. It's a little risky. I've actually gotten hair color in my eye. Uh, I was coloring my hair at home. This was maybe like 15 years ago and really? I got it in my eyes and I had to like crawl to a sink. It was awful. Um it was so awful. And your blue eyes have turned brown ever since. So exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got another story to chat up a little bit. Um, have you seen what CBS is doing with their uh, t- tested to be trusted at CBS program? Oh, yeah. Tested to be trusted. You know how we like to bash on uh, supplements because, you know, it's... <laughs> well, it's easy. <laughs> I mean, it's practically unregulated. Thank you, Deshay Act. Is it Deshay or... The... Yeah, it's a Deshay, right? Yes. What's that one with the hair uh, colorants? Oh, that's the Delaney Act. I'm sorry. I was getting... Delaney Act, right. yep. But the Deshay Act was... A pub... uh, it was passed, I think, in 1994, which yep, essentially... sounds about right. It, it, it took the power away from the FDA to regulate supplements because uh, they mm-hmm. were going to but it, but one of the problems with that is so now you have supplements that are barely regulated and what happens is that companies will launch a, a, a supplement line and maybe they don't follow good manufacturing procedures and maybe they're not even putting in the vitamins or the ginkgo biloba or whatever compounds they say are in there or Maybe the extracts are adulterated with other byproducts they're not aware of. Lots of possibilities. Yeah. And in fact, I I had heard of a case where a supplement was doped with Viagra. It was a plant supplement was supposed to be used for, well, same thing that Viagra was, and they just put Viagra in there. <laughs> and then, wow, it worked. You know? but, so the so bot- awful. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the bottom line is you when supplements, it's it's a barely regulated industry, and so what CVS did is they started this program to do independent testing to make sure that the supplements that you get, you're actually getting what's advertised in the label, because the FDA is not looking at you, looking out for you, actually. So they said this tested-to-be-trusted program worked out pretty well for them. They, you know, they were able to certify that uh, ingredients that were labeled as vitamins actually had the vitamin in there and that kind of thing. And that got me thinking about the cosmetic industry. Mm. Would this be something that would work for our own industry? Interesting. You know, it's a little difficult because typically the vitamins that are being sold are single compounds very rarely unless you have like a multivitamin or something like that you'll have mixtures but cosmetic products are typically blends and from a testing perspective it's very difficult to test mixtures for individual compounds it can be done it's just difficult time consuming expensive the other thing is cosmetics use so many ingredients and 
the testing facility has to have a methodology to test for that ingredient in the product. It's not like, oh, let me put this product on a machine and it's going to be like, doot, 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 and like spit out everything in it in the exact levels. Sometimes I think um, people think that's what happens. But <laughs> yeah, that they're like, happen. can't you just... Can't you just put this on your machine right. and it's like, me? Um, so I think, um, you know, when you're dealing with these mixtures and um, you want to test for individual ingredients, you have to work with the laboratory or have a validated method to check for a specific ingredient. And sometimes laboratories don't have those methods established and you have to go to another place, maybe that tests for those things. So sometimes the big things are covered or the common things, but it would be really difficult to check for. Also, like who cares how much glycerin is in something or <laughs> right. is glycerin in something? So, I mean, like maybe it could work if there's a product that's like 15% vitamin C, but Well, like again, stuff, stuff out of the, like the like a brand like The Ordinary where they will make specific claims about like, oh, this is 10% retinol or something like that. Yeah, I could see that, but I just don't know how much it would pay off economically. And they're always rotating in new products. Right. It's not like vitamins where it can really make an impact if you ingest those things. I don't know. It could be done. Would it pay off for CVS? I don't think so. And I think also just because your laboratory analytical tests can show that, yes, there's this percentage that's in this formula, that doesn't mean it's been formulated in a way that it's going to deliver that much to the skin or to the hair. And so the way things are formulated matters more than, say, in a supplement where once it gets into your stomach, the whole thing breaks down, and so anything that's in there will get into your stomach. Whereas on skincare, something might be locked up in a vesicle or something and never break open and never get to your skin. And so it's not mm -hmm. so simple as well, you just do this lab test and it's the amount is going to get to your skin 100%. That, that just doesn't happen. It reminds yeah. me of, um, you know, those stories about lead in lipstick. And <laughs> and the thing is, there there are things where lead is in lipsticks at really tiny amounts. But the thing about that is that is always missed is that that lead is tied up in compounds. And the only way that you are able to uh, determine that there is lead in a lipstick is that you break it down with hydrofluoric acid, one of the strongest acids that there is, and that breaks it down. That would never happen on your skin, so the lead would Well, I would hope it wouldn't happen on your skin unless you're drinking some hydrofluoric acid to kill yourself. <laughs> yes, kids. And then I think the lead in the lipstick's the least of your problems. Yes, kids. Kids at home, don't don't put hydrofluoric <laughs> do acid not do on this. your lips, right? But the do bottom not. line is oh that my goodness. the lead is so wrapped up, it's not bioavailable, as we would say. And so just because you can find it in a lab doesn't mean your body would ever get exposed to it. It's the same kind of deal with this, and that's what makes it much more complicated than, say, in a supplement. But my bottom line on this, Valerie, you know what it is? What uh, is it, Perry? It, it is uh, supplements suck, and they're unregulated. Don't buy them. <laughs> lightly regulated. They're lightly regulated. Oh, yeah, right. Lightly regulated, <laughs> at least in the United States. All right, shall we move on to some actual questions from listeners? Yeah, yay to hair questions. The hair question extravaganza kicks off with a question that somebody submitted 
from Twitter. You know Twitter. We've got uh, the Beauty Brains on Twitter. We've actually been on Twitter since way early on. I think uh, 2009, maybe? Maybe 2008. But people aren't aware of any long-standing beauty podcasts. <laughs> they, they, they aren't. How would you know? How would you know? <laughs> All right, this one comes from some Kashider. She says, is coal tar in medicated shampoo just a chemical exfoliant, or is there more to it? Could I use it uh, in place of a scalp treatment with AHAs or BHAs? Also, are shampoo brushes really useful? Thanks. All right, well, thank you for that question. Now, coal tar, uh, actually, anti-dandruff shampoos or anti-dandruff conditioners too, hair treatments, are in the United States regulated as drugs uh, because they actually treat a medical condition. And coltar is actually one of the approved drugs for this treatment. Uh, it actually works as what is called a keratoplastic, uh, which mm-hmm. means it will work by causing the skin to shed the dead cells or the keratinocytes on the outer layers of the skin. And it also helps to kind of slow the growth of the skin cells at the bottom. So in that way, it is essentially a, an exfoliant. Uh, the effect, it's, it, de- it decreases the scaliness of the outer layers of the skin and the dryness of the scalp. Um, coal tar actually has the effect of decreasing itchiness uh, from these conditions. And like I said, it's approved as an anti-dandruff uh, drug in, uh, in anti-dandruff products. Now... One of the concerns about coal tar, of course, is that uh, people are concerned about cancer. And actually, if you use a coal tar in the great state of California, your, your, uh, your home state, um, you have to put yep. one of those Prop 67 things on there that says this, uh, this ingredient is demonstrated to cause cancer. Prop 65. Oh, and right. I, I think people are so numb to it, they... No one pays attention to them, but nonetheless, um, it's required in the state of California. Now, so if you go into like a Starbucks, they have to put that sign too, right? Because <laughs> exactly because of coffee and <laughs> plastic lids. Apparently, coffee and plastic lids both cause cancer. <laughs> so it doesn't slow anyone down in that <laughs> Starbucks drive-through line. <laughs> there you go. Which is always very long, even during a pandemic. Maybe even especially during a <laughs> pandemic, right? Yeah. I, I do want to note that uh, st- there, studies have never shown that uh, using coal tar uh, shampoo or conditioner give you any increased risk of cancer. Uh, where there was a problem with coal tar is for the people who work in the manufacturing uh, plants of it, and that's yeah. that's a real yeah. problem. You're exposed to so much more. But for people, there's never been a study to show a problem. So- the bottom line on coal tar is, indeed, it is a, a chemical exfoliant, essentially, and it works very much like something like salicylic acid, which is also a... Also an anti-dandruff agent, yep. Exactly. And so your question is, can you just use it in place of that? And I would think that, in fact, you could use that in place of that if if you're not getting the effect that you want out of salicylic acid. I think coal tar would be a good uh, alternative. Valerie, there there was this other piece of the question here, and which I yeah. actually didn't know about. 
But there is this notion of a shampoo brush. <laughs> a notion of a shampoo. Uh, yes, uh, see, there she is said, a notion of a shampoo brush. I had never heard of shampoo brushes. So, you know, when I get a question like this, I'm like, wait, I shouldn't. I know hair care. Why don't I know about shampoo brushes? So I looked it up. And uh, indeed, there is a shampoo brush. And uh, But I asked you about it. And you said, uh, oh, you know what shampoo brushes are. So what's the deal yeah. with shampoo brushes? So a shampoo brush is a small thing that looks like a brush, fits in your hand. It wow. typically has silicone uh, bristles coming out of it, kind of like silicone uh, elements in your kitchen that you use to pick up pots and pans and stuff. They're made out of silicone, so they're flexible, etc. Yeah. And you use them in the shower. You don't use them as a regular hairbrush. They're actually meant to put... Um, onto the scalp and massage around while you're washing or shampooing to get physical mechanical action Let's on get your scalp. Physical, to... physical. Uh, pardon <laughs> yeah. my uh, Olivia Newton John there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's interesting is um, I actually have seen a lot about shampoo brushes on Instagram. And in fact, uh, there's one girl I absolutely love to follow. Mains by Mel. She has the most beautiful curly hair and she kind of makes me want to get a perm just so I can have (laughs) curly hair like her. But I kind of feel like it wouldn't turn out the same, but she's just (laughs) absolutely mesmerizing to watch with all of her routine recommendations and how to wear different looks for curly hair. So check out Mains by Mel. She's great. Anyway, uh, she uses a lot of shampoo brushes in her videos as well, or maybe it's the same shampoo brush and she just uses it. Um, I, I don't really know for sure, but I see her doing it sometimes. And I'm not totally sold on it. Like, I think it's good if it encourages you to exfoliate your scalp, but I feel like your fingers can also be really effective. Yeah. One thing I've learned from working at a lab with a test salon is that people don't do a great job of brushing their own hair. So um, really important that you get your fingers in and really scrub and massage around. And maybe people don't do it enough and the shampoo brush is a way to uh, get in there. I, I feel like your fingers would work just as well though. So again, the idea is can you improve exfoliation? Can you improve scalp circulation? I think if you regularly brush your hair with a brush and you really get in with your fingers and go at it all over your whole scalp, should be the same. I could see where maybe the shampoo brush is beneficial for curly hair if you don't want to do too much manipulation um, and movement with your hands. The brush is a really nice way to get a lot of you know, mini silicone fingers into your hair without manipulating the hair. So that's the shampoo brush. Um, again, you'd be fine to use your fingers, but if you're worried about, uh, fussing up your hair into knots or like you have really fine hair, um, this may be a good option for you. You know, Valerie, when I had really short hair, which I have now, I actually got my hair cut. So after you mullet shamed me last episode. Oh my gosh, you (laughs) did get a haircut. I knew something was different. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, once, once you said last time, you're like, Hey, (laughs) I didn't want to say anything, but you got a total mullet (laughs) going (laughs) on. You kind of did have a mullet and I think I did tell you that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. After you, gosh, I, after you plenaria shamed me, but (laughs) But anyway, um, I, I noticed like, when I have my hair short, I do not, I don't comb my hair. I just take my fingers and I'm like, oh, that's good enough. 
Uh, but when my hair was growing longer and I was getting near, I was just on the cusp of mulletness. <laughs> I did rather no, like... No, you, you had a mullet. There was no cusp. You were on the <laughs> other side of the cusp. Well, I did rather like to just take a comb and just like run it through my scalp. And that, that actually felt Aww. quite good. I I didn't care you about... You had what, a little routine going on. No, I didn't care about what my hair looked like, but I did like the little bristles rubbing against my scalp. So <laughs> there you go. Well... With the haircut, there went being Joe Exotic for Halloween. So It is all gone. Shall we move on to our next question, which is an audio question? Ooh. Hi, Beauty Brains. I'm a professional stylist looking for a new color line. I find that a lot of professional permanent color lines are moving away from ammonia and towards MEA-based colors. I find these hard to remove, and they also can cause itching or headaches with my clients. So I'm looking for an ammonia-based color. I have found one called Megix 10 by Mullen. It says it processes in 10 minutes, and their high-lift colors process in 20. How can they do this, and why are other color lines taking 35? Is this magical? Is this something I should check out? What do I need to be aware of, and what downsides are there to a color that processes in 10 minutes? Thank you. Carolyn, this is a great question. The thing people need to know about hair color, whether you're a salon professional or someone coloring your hair at home, is that the key to hair color is time. When you put a layer of hair color on your hair, it needs to migrate into the hair fiber. And that cannot happen instantaneously. It takes time. We call it a concentration gradient, right? So there's not hair color in your hair. So the hair color is going to travel from the outside where it is to the inside against this concentration gradient. And you need time to do that. So traditional permanent hair color typically takes anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, depending on how coarse your hair is to get inside to where you have a pretty good deposition. And these quickie hair colors, they advertise 10 minute hair color. And I'm like, sure, yeah, you can color hair in 10 minutes, but how long is it going to take to come out, right? Um, When it's only 10 minutes of travel into the hair fiber, you're not going to get very far. So the amount of color you have is going to be shallow. And I personally believe that hair color will come out more quickly. Time is really your best friend. And I know it stinks when you're a stylist, you want to turn guests in and out. Guests don't want to spend hours at the salon. So it's super important to just make sure you take the time Time is your friend. The longer the hair color is on, the further it can travel inside. I know that with ammonia and MEA, it can be tough because guests don't like ammonia. It smells, but MEA also um, is special on hair. It can be hard to remove hair color that has had MEA in it. People can be sensitized to MEA. That's the itching you mentioned. So... um, You just got to go with the 10 minutes. You got to deal with the odor. And uh, that really will give your guests the longevity they're looking for, which at the end of the day, if your guest is happy, they're going to keep coming back to you. So my personal advice, stay away from the 10 minute color and just uh, do this timed intensity. Well, let me ask you about the the ammonia versus the MEA. Are you you on team MEA or team ammonia? (laughs) I'm on team ammonia. I'll tell you why. There was a 2000, well, I was on team ammonia before this study was published. (laughs) You were on team ammonia before team ammonia was cool. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I love the smell of ammonia. That's how I knew I was meant to be a hair color chemist. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, um, 
there was a study published in 2014 actually assessing what is safer to use over multiple uses, an Mm -hmm. ammonia-based hair color or an MEA-based hair color. And yeah, ammonia-based hair color is damaging, but they found that MEA-based hair color is actually more damaging. Over time. Over time, yep. That is because ammonia is a gas. It's a very small molecule, goes in the hair, does the swelling, works synergistically with the hydrogen peroxide, and then it's like, bye, and gets out of the hair. That's why you can smell ammonia-based hair color, and it's unpleasant. Mm-hmm. MEA-based hair color. Uh, well, you you don't think it's unpleasant. <laughs> Most people think it's unpleasant. Yeah, I'm I'm unusual in that sense. MEA-based hair color works in the same way. MEA is an alkalizer, but the thing about MEA is a, a liquid. It's not a gas. It virtually is odorless. It goes into the hair fiber, does its job, not as effectively as ammonia, so you have to use a whole bunch of it. And then it kind of stays in the hair. And this 2014 study, I think, found that MEA-based hair color can do 82% more protein damage um, in the hair when they were looking at specific protein markers. So definitely more damaging. Um, Anytime someone messages me and they're like, help, my hair feels like straw. I'm using home hair color. I'm like, yeah, it's MEA-based. Like, stop. And then the next thing you know, their hair um, condition improves. So I'm not an MEA fan. I think it's, you know, great for some people. They like the look of it um, because it stays in the hair. You can tend to get like denser, inkier colors. But from a safety perspective, uh, ammonia is better. From a performance perspective, ammonia is better. You use less of it. And I'm all about efficacy and safety. So team ammonia. Yeah, and if you have to get your client to sit there for 35 minutes, you should just come up with some good patter and good good <laughs> good discussion. <laughs> you know, I get yeah. my I get my hair cut by a guy near my house. He doesn't really speak that much English. He's from Syria. And every time mm. I say, "Hey, how's it going?" and the only I think the only English he knows is, "Thank you, my friend." <laughs> Cuz how's it going? Thank you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a wonderful guy, <laughs> and I get haircuts for $20, which is plenty for he me. He does a great job cutting your hair, yeah. Well, he only charges... Although I, I'm sad he agreed to cut your mullet off. That's a <laughs> blasphemy right there. I'm like, I wonder what he did with all that hair that I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I probably threw it away. <laughs> Morgan says, are salt sprays for hair safe to use? What makes them work the way they do? And... Is there any similar alternative? I was saying, like a salt spray, isn't that like going into the ocean and swimming? <laughs> it's got to be the same well, effect, that's right? Same effect, yeah. Salt sprays are those uh, sprays that people use to create that beachy textured look within their hair. So something that just says, oh, I just spent the day at the beach, but I'm still really put together looking. But That's what salt sprays do for hair. But it's not the salt that is doing that, right? It's the other ingredients that are in there? No, I think it's the salt. Okay. First of all, these products have a lot of water, so they're really efficient at wetting the hair. Sure, yeah. And when the salt, uh, when the water goes away and the hair dries, the salt recrystallizes. Right. And I think it helps keep a little bit of a wavy pattern because the way the salt crystallized. When you rinse your hair again and the salt goes away, your hair goes back to being normal. Right. The the salt the salt will crystallize and they'll essentially will separate fibers from each other is like mm-hmm. essentially yep. 
essentially there's granules between your fibers, right? And so that's going to exactly. that's going to give you space and it's going to give you volume and that's essentially how these things work. And this is actually the record for the number of times that I've said essentially on a single show of The Beauty Brain. So there we go. <laughs> Someone <laughs> will have to fact check that. Cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> so uh, are these things safe? I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, as far as safe goes, of course they're safe, right? Yeah, I mean, we eat salt, right? Right. Well, and people go swimming in the ocean all the time. There's a lot of salt in there. Although what the concentration yeah. of salt in the ocean is maybe 1%. While you, while you talk, I'm going to look that up. Yeah. So I think the thing that people uh, think about salt sprays is that, well, I know my hair feels super rough or, you know, uh, dry after the ocean. Uh, is a salt spray going to do the same thing? Is it damaging for hair? People who get keratin treatments try to avoid salt and shampoos. And I think it's not really the salt that's the issue. I think it's the water. Water is one of the most damaging things for hair. And, you know, when you're in the ocean, in your shower, putting these high water concentrated salt sprays on your hair, I think out of anything, it's the water that's doing anything. I, I don't think salt is the issue. What do you think, Perry? Yes. Uh, no, I I agree. I don't, uh, salt is not going to like, penetrate into your hair fibers i mean there's there there's space in there anyway i don't think it's going to like swell up the the water could swell up your hair and that could become a problem but the salt well especially with oceans because doesn't ocean water have a higher ph than like your texture spray ph which is probably like around five or six aren't oceans like seven eight yeah, but, well, now we got to look up the uh, pH of the ocean. <laughs> well, I was looking up the, the salt concentration of the ocean, which is 35 parts per 1,000. Wow. Which is, what is that, 3.5% salt? Yep. Yeah, yeah I mean, a, a texture spray would probably have a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but again, it's at a lower pH. I'm confident the pH of the ocean is uh, between 7 and 8. You are confident of that, huh? Wow. I'm like. I, We're just going like to go to Google right confident. now. What is the <laughs> pH of the ocean 2020? And Google says it's around 8.1. You are wow, a winner. I like that you had to put the year in. Wow. <laughs> you are a winner. Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, the ocean could be damaging one of pH, causing hair to swell, tons of water flooding into the hair. That's going to cause more damage than the salt, I would think. Bottom line, I think salt sprays are safe to use. For sure. For sure. And they're better than the ocean because their pH is lower. (laughs) Yeah. And typically the salts that you find in these salt sprays, as a formulator, I don't typically use sodium chloride, although I suppose you could. Uh, Most of the salt sprays that I see utilize magnesium sulfate like Epsom salts. Are you saying, are you like a sodium chloride snob or something? You don't like, oh my (laughs) God, sodium chloride. (laughs) Well, I, I don't know. Just the ones on the market I see use magnesium sulfate. I don't know why. You know, when when I was uh, at Alberto and I was on the VO5 line, we used sodium lauryl sulfate. <laughs> and Oh, my God. You worked at Alberto? I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <You're> like... <laughs> no, no, I get it. I, I heard the sarcasm. But uh, so you know how you know who our big rivals were. 
We were the VO. We were Team VO Five. The big rivals were Tresemme. No, no, no. Tresemme was our own brand. The big rivals. Oh, I didn't know if there was like you know it was like a frenemy thing. Like you're for the same company, but you're like secretly enemies. Oh, I don't know if it was like that. Well, well, there was that. The the Tresemme people were snobs. Although eventually, I worked on Tresemme too. So you know, I I have uh, competing allegiances there. But when I was on VO Five, our big competitor was Swab. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And actually, White White Rain too, but White Rain was sort of the you know nobody sort of paid attention to. Swab was a big one, and Swab they were using the ammonium lauryl sulfate, and we used mm-hmm. sodium. And I thought ammonium lauryl sulfate was so gauche. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, people don't really use that one anymore. It's kind of like it's kind of tricky to work with. And if you're not careful, uh, you'll release ammonia when you're making it. Well, I don't mind. The the other big problem with ammonium lauryl sulfate is that in production, it can start to break down like the stainless steel kettles that you're making your uh, shampoo. And so over time, (laughs) those things just kind of start leaking. So (laughs) that's... uh... Oh, gosh. Well, I hope, Morgan, that answers your question. Go ahead and use salt sprays. They're perfectly fine. <laughs> Indeed. We got time for one more. This one comes to us from Richard, who apparently has a couple of daughters he's wondering about products for. Richard says, I have two stepdaughters whose natural hair color is blonde, but not super pale. Anyway, they both use this purple shampoo. Am I wasting my money on this, or does it really make a difference? Thank you in advance. Richard, excellent question. A lot of people think purple shampoo is a hoax, and it's not. I'll tell you why. When your hair is blonde, another code word for blonde is yellow. And when you have yellow hair, you don't want it to appear yellow. I don't know many people who like their hair to be yellow. Um, You want it to appear natural, neutralized, like this natural, really light beige look. And the only way that you can get rid of the yellow is if you counteract the color. The only way you can counteract yellow is to add purple. Purple is a complementary color to yellow. And when you add purple and yellow together, it's an additive effect. They neutralize each other and you get this beautiful, soft beige look. So it's not a hoax. It definitely is something that they really need if they care about their hair not looking too brassy and they want kind of this soft, natural look. So you're definitely not wasting your money. Now, I wonder, as they get older and maybe their hair goes gray and they're using this purple shampoo, will that make their hair turn blue? No, actually, um, even if you have gray hair, purple shampoo is something excellent to use because it helps make gray hair look a little bit more silver. Sometimes gray hair can start to take on a yellowish cast. That happens from, at least I've read in the literature, UV light hitting the hair and starting this electron cascade in the hair and yellowing the hair fiber. And again, when you have yellow and you want to get rid of it, you add purple. It's just basic color theory. So even people with gray hair can use purple shampoo to enhance their hair to a more silvery look. But what do you think is the genesis of that stereotype of the blue-haired ladies? I think they are using too much purple shampoo. Ah, yes. Or, (laughs) yeah, or they're using, um, some people may be using a blue shampoo. And again, if you have yellow hair, you don't want to add blue because yellow plus blue is green. So uh, if you had orange hair, 
like you're a brunette and you had a little blonding and your hair is orange, you would want to use blue because blue plus orange is a neutral color. I think also when you have um, these purple shampoos or blue shampoos, it's really important to note how much depositing they are because you don't want to overuse it. Then you start to look right. like a corpse uh, with your hair. The other thing is purple is a combination of blue and red that makes purple. So your purple shampoo may have more red than blue. It's still purple. It's just a warm purple, or it may be a really cool icy purple because it has more blue than red. And those blue haired ladies may be using that kind of colorant. So it's hard to say. You know what else they might be using? Uh, I worked on another brand called the VO5, <laughs> VO5 Hairdressing. <laughs> what an awful brand name. <laughs> well, I mean, the guy did buy VO5 and turn it into like a $2 billion company. On just All right. <laughs> I'm the stupid one. I get it. <laughs> but one of the skews of VO5 hairdressing was a, a purple slash blue skew. And so maybe oh, the, the lanolin based, because it was lanolin, petrolatum, like mineral oil. It's like five oils. And then the v, uh, violet DNC, violet number two, which is the mm-hmm. purple thing. That's the most popular one. Yep. Maybe, maybe if you use too much uh, hairdressing, purple hairdressing, maybe that could cause the blue hair. Yep. All right. Well, if you want blue hair, that's how you can get it. I think VO5 is, <laughs> the, you know, just as an aside before we finish up here. Uh, I remember when I was on that VO5 hairdressing, we were trying to reboot the brand because all of the people buying it were dying. Okay, let's <laughs> move on. That's well, the source of blue-haired ladies. Well, in our next uh, episode, we're going to we're going to answer a question that somebody asked uh, about Valerie and why she hates my cellar water. So, and <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you get a chance, you can go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That will help people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And if you have a question, you can just record your question on a smartphone. I was just looking, Valerie, we have uh, 53 uh, audio questions. I think we're going to have to start doubling up the audio questions for upcoming shows. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But we're still going to get to those. And if you have a smartphone and an email address. You can record that on your smartphone and then email your question to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page. And we have a lot of patrons. In fact, we're going to do a special patron event uh, probably at the end of this month. It was a question and answer thing we did last month. We could do another one this month. Um, if you are interested in that and you want to follow us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and you can subscribe. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens. <laughs>